Support for this podcast comes from Park Row Books, publisher of Under My Skin by New York Times bestselling author Lisa Unger. Under My Skin is an addictive psychological thriller about a woman on the hunt for her husband's killer. Poppy is determined to unravel the mystery around her husband's death, but can she handle the truth about what really happened? Listen to the audiobook for Under My Skin today. Listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 179, and today we are talking about books being released on October 9th, 2018, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from BookRiot.com. Reunited, and it feels so good. It's been like three weeks since we've done this. Our schedule has just been so wonky around here, but I'm glad to be back. I couldn't come up with a superlative. I was like, with Rebecca Shinsky. Yay! Yeah. Like, you need no other, you know, adjective, really. <laughs> Let's go with that. Yeah. It's been so long! I'm excited. I know. Me too. It's nice to be back in the groove here. Before we get started, I just want to make a small note to people listening at home who have small children with them. Uh, it is fall. It is scary, creepy book time, and I love them. And I'm going to talk about several of them today with a lot of trigger warnings, so you might want to skip listening to this one with your kids. You know, or they might grow up like me. So, really, you should be scared. (laughs) So, that said, are you ready to hear about books? You know I am. All right. I can't believe it's finally time to talk about this book. I feel like I read it ages ago. I've been sitting on it. I'm excited. Everyone is excited. It's The Witch Elm by Tana French. The new Tana French. Woo! Have you ever read Tana French? I have. I read uh, In the Woods and whatever the one, the second one after that was. Yes, the likeness. And I really liked both of them. And then I just sort of fell off the wagon. I am not a great keeper up of series reader. Well, good news then. This is a standalone. Perfect. Yeah, it's not part of the Dublin Murder Squad. It is a standalone mystery. It's about a young man named Toby. He's 27, living in Dublin. Uh, I'm not going to, like, none of the books that I'm talking about today I can tell you too much about except for, like, one of them. Uh, so I'm going to give you the, like, the basic details that you can really read in the jacket copy. Uh, he goes out for a night of drinks with his buddies to kind of celebrate this thing. And after he, burglars break into his home and beat him within an inch of his life. Mm. And his reco- it's about like his recovery he's he has a lot of injury obviously he spends a lot of time in the hospital he's you know a different person now than he was the day before this happened and he finds out that his beloved uncle hugo uh who lives in the family home a giant rambling mansion called the ivy house uncle hugo uh is dying and they need someone there to sort of take care of him. And, and Toby is sort of recovering, both physically and mentally, from his attack. So he goes and stays with Uncle Hugo at the Ivy House. Long story short, they find a human skull in the witch elm in the backyard. Oh, but like that's you do. not unsettling at all. <laughs> so that's really, like, all I want to kind of tell you about what happens but I will tell you a little bit about the book. Toby is a wanker. Um, he, he, like, <laughs> right off the bat, he's talking about, I like... I was not expecting that <laughs> sentence. He is! He's kind of like, ugh. Like, 
he's talking about like how he's been so because he's like telling this you know he's looking back on what happened so he's telling you like how he used to just be like the luckiest person and he used to get by on his charm and his good looks and he had this amazing job and he has this like amazing girlfriend she's just the nicest and the nicest and the sweetest and she takes good care of him and he's just so lucky and that he's actually the night that he's out before his attack he gets into this sort of scrape at work he knows some things that he should have told his boss and he didn't and his boss like tells him okay I'm not gonna fire you you know and he's he's like super cocky because he's like I didn't get fired and I'm so awesome and all this stuff you know I kind of was looking forward to his beating by the time like we got to it because I was like he needs his comeuppance um so and, and again he was lucky the doctors keep telling him how lucky he was to have survived I mean he's just a lucky guy you know um, so this is very different than the Dublin Murder Squad in that it's not a police procedural. Um, it moves at a slower pace. It's just a very detailed look, like, at Toby's injury and illness, both his and his uncle's. You know, it's like 100 pages before he even gets to his uncle's house, and it's like like mm. a 500-page book. Um, Tana French reminds me a lot of Donna Tartt in that way. Sometimes you're oh, like, interesting. there's a lot of details in here that we didn't need, but I think that's what makes it so delicious. Um... It's the story of a skull, and but then it's like a family drama about illness and recovery. Toby cannot remember something, so he's having some problems with his memory. And he's thinking about, you know, the summers that he spent at this house with his two cousins. They used to get dropped off there because their grandparents were alive when they were young, and they would stay there for, like, holidays and vacations. And, you know, after the attack, the details of what his time there are kind of hard to remember, and his attitude is sort of different about everything. And so now there's a skull in the backyard, and it's like, how old is it? Where did it come from? Who knows about it, you know? And it's it's so it's so good. It just simmers the whole time. I mean, it's so, like, luscious. And, she, you know, Tana French actually makes us care about Toby, despite the fact that he's a total git. Like, he's fantastic. And I kind of liked that part. I was like, ugh, I don't want to, like, hang out with this guy, really, but I kind of thought he was the perfect narrator for this story. Um, so it's fantastic. They did dumb down the title for the U.S. Uh, in other countries. It's The Witch Elm, W-Y-C-H, and that's how it's spelled in the book, but for some reason it's W-I-T-C-H uh, on the mm. cover. Um, so it is a thriller. It is, you know, th- there's a skull. So trigger warnings, you know, for violence, for sexual assault, for misogyny. For, you know, illness and uh, its aftermath. Uh, but it's so good. It's Tana French. It's so good. Like, why? I don't even... I should have just said, the new Tana French. And that's The Witch Home by Tana French. And that's all you really needed. So, I'm excited. Totally fair. Uh, this is a hard right turn, I think, into my, <laughs> into my first pick this week. It's To Shake the Sleeping Self by Jedediah Jenkins. This came out last week on October 2nd. And I almost missed this book. I don't know how it wasn't on my radar, but it showed up in the mail and I was just instantly like, well, this is the thing that I'm reading. Uh, on the, like, right, but it's basically a, uh, in the vein of wild kind of quarter-life crisis adventure story, Jedediah Jenkins went to law school um, and worked for nonprofits, had professional success, but like on the way to his 30th birthday, was just not feeling 
settled in his life in a way that he wanted to, wasn't feeling comfortable in his identity. Um, He grew up in the evangelical Christian community in Tennessee, but he is a gay man and uh, reconciling his identity that he and what he knows to be true and natural of himself with especially the conflict that he experiences with his parents around uh, his sexuality was just really tough. And he felt like he needed something to take his life apart and put himself back together. And he met a person who had just done a bicycle trip to Patagonia. Uh, So he decided that's what he was going to do as well. Uh, He quits his job and spends 16 months biking from Oregon to Patagonia. And this is the story of that trip. Um, He has a companion along the way, a biking buddy that he meets like last minute who comes along on the trip and is a really interesting foil to him in a lot of ways. Uh, And he does a lot of it by himself. His friends show up at various points. His mom shows up at various points. And as he's uh, biking through really difficult terrain, going through a, a lot of time in his own head, a lot of loneliness, some scary moments, sometimes of having to rely on the kindness of strangers when he's not sure if it's going to be safe to do so, and ultimately coming face to face with the pieces of his identity that he has never really grappled with in a in a full and fully honest way before. Um, he allows himself to question his faith. Uh, he allows himself to be truthful with his mom, even though it's going to disappoint and hurt her. And like this trip really does do the thing that he's hoping it will do. But how that works is, of course, um, much more difficult than he even anticipated it to be, and not nearly as like the clouds part and epiphany comes down from uh, from the sky. It's a, a t- tough journey that he goes on. And that's the intention is to challenge himself. And it does crack him wide open. His writing about it is really beautiful. Um, He's a professional travel writer now and has written for National Geographic, among uh, many other things. And you can see that just love of language and love of the world and the connection between experiencing nature and understanding his spirituality is really, really wonderful. Uh, I just, I felt in a lot of ways like this book was just kind of factory made for me. If it had been like hiking around the world instead of bicycling, it probably would have been perfect. Um, But just packed with honesty, a lot of interesting questions, grappling with some tough things in life. And it does that wide open vulnerable thing that I think the very best memoirs do that allow us to ask those questions of ourselves as well. So that's To Shake the Sleeping Self by Jedediah Jenkins. Right on. I'm like Mm -hmm. super pumped to talk about books today. I mean, I usually am, but for some reason today, I'm super extra excited. And I'm going to tell you about our next sponsor, which is also a fantastic book. So... It's What If It's Us by Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera, and Epic comes from Epic Reads. Uh, best-selling authors Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera combine their talents in this heartfelt collaboration about two boys who can't decide if the universe is pushing them together or pulling them apart. Arthur is only in New York for the summer, but if Broadway has taught him anything, it's that the universe can deliver a show-stopping romance when you least expect it. Ben thinks the universe needs to mind its business. If it had his back, he wouldn't be on his way to the post office carrying a box of his ex-boyfriend's things. But when they meet cute at the post office, what exactly does the universe have in store for them? It's so charming and fun, and they've sold the rights. It's going to be a movie. 
I believe I read that last week. So that is What If It's Us by Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera and Epic Reads. And we thank them for sponsoring. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's available now wherever books are sold. All Back right. to the murder. You know, I was going to say, we're recording earlier in the day than we normally do. And it's like the coffee has kicked in. <laughs> well, you're off the Red Bull, but like th- that, it, it has that flavor. We're not in the like post-lunch. Yeah torpor right now so uh, my next book oh i love it it's called bitter orange it's by claire fuller she wrote our endless number of days and swimming lessons which i loved but i love this one even more and i didn't plan this but this one also sort of takes place in a sprawling country home and uh, relies on an unreliable memory for the plot um, it's about a woman named Frances Jellico. At the beginning of the book, uh, we know that she is dying. She is laying in bed. She doesn't remember a lot. She's in and out, um, and people are coming and going and taking care of her. Uh, but she keeps flashing back to the summer of 1969, uh, which now sounds like Brian Adams. But anyway, Frances in 1969 was a dutiful daughter. Her mother was very ill. She had always, she was like 37. She had always lived with her mother and taken care of her. Her father left them when she was very young and her mother never recovered from that. Uh, They never saw him again. So she's always stayed by her mother's side and taking care of her. She doesn't have a lot of friends. She doesn't have a lot of like interest in anything going outside. So her mother passes away and all of a sudden she has to leave the home. She doesn't have the money to stay there and she doesn't know what to do and sort of serendipity Dipitously. Is that a word? Did I just make that up? Yes, uh, she, it is. No, that's a word. <laughs> I was like, I'm adding a lot of things to the end of serendipity. Um, she gets a job at this dilapidated English country mansion called Linton's. She is really interested in gardens and bridges and the architecture of those things. And she has written several papers about them, which have been published. And this American reaches out to her and says, Hey, I just bought this giant mansion in England. Uh, and I need someone to take an accounting of the grounds and tell me what's there, what's, what's worth anything, what's worth salvaging. And so she's like, perfect! So she gets there, the house is a mess. The army had taken over it during World War II and just trashed the place. The owner let it fall into ruins after that. And so she is, Frances is not the only person in this mansion. There is also a couple, Peter and Kara. They are this very glamorous, slightly younger couple Um, They're all about like lounging around and telling stories and going swimming and they sort of seduce her with their way of living. They draw her into their world. You know, they like to have big dinners and they drink all night and sleep until noon. Um, But there's also like a lot going on between Peter and Kara. She's not really sure what's happening between them, but they have a lot of fights and there's a lot of crying and stomping and, you know, taking off. Um, It's and so, but she's like fascinated by this couple, you know, because she's gone from living with her mother to this very, you know, interesting couple. But also, so Frances is living in the attic, and there, <laughs> this is a huge house, but they only have two bathrooms that work. One is in her attic, and it turns out, as she's looking for an earring that she dropped on the floor, she discovers there's a spyglass in the floor that looks down into their bathroom. So that's not creepy. She doesn't know why it's there, and sometimes she likes to look through the spyglass at Peter and Kara's bathroom. Um, so, you know, so, like, as the story goes on, you know, she sort of blows off work. She hangs out with Kara a lot. Kara tells all these amazing stories about her life, and but then later on, Peter tells Frances not to really trust the things that Kara is telling her. It's super creepy. It's very atmospheric, and... 
it like little things happen that you're like that was unsettling and then it goes back to being like you know this story and then you're like ooh that was kind of creepy um and I won't tell you anything else about it except I will say at the very beginning the vicar of the estate who had lived there at the church on the estate when they were there in 69 is asking her to tell him what really happened that summer so dun 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 Mm. Obviously, trigger, war- trigger warnings, violence. There's a terrible animal death. Um, so if you know that's coming, maybe that helps. But it's so atmospheric and, and just wonderful. I just wanted to wear it. It's Bitter Orange, and it's by Claire Fuller. <laughs> I just wanted to wear I it. I did. It's so good. <laughs> oh, Lib. Uh- <laughs> My next pick this week is another wonderful memoir that came out last week. Uh, It's called All You Can Ever Know. It's by Nicole Chung. And I've not read a memoir quite like this one before, so focused on a particular part of someone's identity, I don't think. Um, Nicole Chung is Korean. She was born a couple of months premature, and her parents placed her for adoption. She was adopted and raised by a white family in a really small town in Oregon, where she was usually the only Korean person, the only person of Asian descent that she saw. Um, And so she experienced a lot of racism and cruelty and a lot of that like taunting nasty stuff that kids do uh, to kids who look different from them. So she was made aware in her childhood that she was different from her interactions uh, with people out in the world. But her parents, her family always told her, um, the they said all the right things that you're supposed to say to kids who are adopted, that her birth parents knew that they couldn't provide her with the life that she deserved. And so they placed her for adoption with a family who would love her and that this was even more meaningful than other ways that people come into having families because her adoptive parents wanted her um, so desperately, and they chose to take her in. Um, so she has this very like secure, attached family that has raised her, but it's still really tough to be the only Korean person, the only person of Asian descent that she that she sees in her regular life. Um, and she struggles with that growing up in ways that she never communicates to her adoptive parents and doesn't fully grapple with herself until uh, she eventually decides to search for her birth parents. The memoir is about essentially that process about how she decided to search for her birth parents. It was a closed adoption, which means that the parties can't get in touch with each other directly and that uh, information can't be released to either of them directly without the other's permission. So it's convoluted how she has to go about trying to get in touch with her parents. And then she finds that she has sisters uh, who had been told that her sisters were born before she was, and they were told that her mom went to the hospital to give birth to a baby and that the baby had died. So her sisters don't know that she exists. Uh, She forms some relationships with them and learns some difficult truths about her birth parents and just wrestles with identity and with what it means to have been given up, but also what it means to have been taken in by this family that loves her and has given her a wonderful life. with how she conceives of adoption, especially transracial adoption, and the stories, the sort of the cultural narratives around adoption and uh, what she's been told, but also how she would like to shift that conversation. Uh, it's also a really moving, very vulnerable story. Um, and tons of people are 
adopted and there's just not a lot of discussion around it in our culture that's not uh, very, you know, rose-colored glasses painted as um, sort of an idealized thing. And she's, I think, doing really important work by talking about her own experience and providing a way for other people to share theirs, um, just to feel seen by someone else who has gone through the same things. It's really beautifully written. Um, I've followed her work online for several years, especially as she was with The Toast. Um, And it's very cool to see book-length work um, that really dives into something about identity and family and what we can know about ourselves and what we can never really know about ourselves. Uh, And so the book is All You Can Ever Know. It's a memoir by Nicole Chung. Fantastic. So good. It is so, so Last good. week I was like, I have a book I want to tell you about, but Rebecca's going to tell you about it next week. So Ah, uh, you <laughs> set me right bad. up. <laughs> uh, my next pick is nonfiction about family and identity and history as well. I actually, I wrote the notes for this and I filled the whole whiteboard and I wasn't even done. It's one of those nonfiction books that I could tell you like a million things about. So I've tried to like scale it back a bit and give you <laughs> just sort of the gist. It's called Invisible, the Forgotten Story of the Black Woman Lawyer Who Took Down America's Most Powerful Mobster by Stephen L. Carter. And it's the story of Eunice Carter. She was one of uh, New York City's first female African-American lawyers, one of the first in the country. Uh, And three of uh, she grew up in Atlanta. Three of her four grandparents had been slaves. Her father was the founder of the African-American Division of the YMCA. Uh, in 1906, during the uh, after the Atlanta race riots, her parents moved them to Brooklyn. They decided they were going to start over somewhere else because they were tired of the South. Uh, she went to Smith College, where she graduated and became a social worker, and then she decided she wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, and so in 1935, she became the assistant DA of New York. And she put together a case that took down mafia boss Lucky Luciano. I think that's how you say his name. Yes. I just, Luciano. Is it Luciano? I it thought is. it was, but like C-I is H, and so there's no other I after that. But I I was like... I only know this because I watched all of Lord <laughs> of the I have not, but I will talk about it later. So it is Luciano. I started to say it, and I was like, that's not how you say it. Okay. So she took down Lucky. Oh, goodness. We'll just call him Lucky. Yeah. She took down Lucky, who until then was basically untouchable and super murdery, like, just killed everyone <laughs> under him, above him, to his left and to his right, just to maintain <laughs> his mob. position. It's super murdery. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she put together this case. You know, he had a massive prostitution ring, and you, you know from the title, basically, you know, what happened. You know, he went down. And um, Stephen L. Carter, the author of this book, is a Yale law professor. He has worked at Yale since... 1982, and he's also an author. He writes thrillers. His first book was The Emperor of Ocean Park, which was a huge, huge deal when it came out, I think in like 2002. He's written several books since then. And he is also Eunice Carter's grandson, which is exciting, like to have somebody this cool, Mm -hmm. you know, in your family. Uh, He didn't, like he knew her, but he didn't know like a lot about her story. Uh, So he tries to present the facts, but he, you know, discusses, like, it's a, actually a very personal story. You know, you're reading about some of your family members and the the things that they went through, the barriers that, you know, were faced by Eunice, you know, because of her race, because of her gender. Um, you know, and she, she caught the bad guy, you know, but she's not really remembered. You know, everybody knows Lucky, you know, and everyone knows her mm-hmm. boss, who was Thomas Dewey, who unsuccessfully ran for president, like, twice. I think once against Truman. And, and you know, but they don't know her story. Very few people remember her. And he's done a beautiful job telling it. 
Um, obviously, trigger warnings for racialized violence, for racialized language, for misogyny. Um, but speaking of Boardwalk Empire, you know, it turns out that it's about, you know, mob, the mob. There's lots of sex and nudity and murder in this show. It was an HBO series, if mm-hmm. you don't know what it was. Um, and on the show, they featured a bit character who was a female African-American lawyer. Uh, and that is what people complained about. Not the sex and the nudity and the violence, but they got a lot of complaints. People being like, that's not possible. There were no African-American lawyers back then. This is an anachronism. You know? Mm-hmm. And he's trying to show that, in fact, there were people like his grandmother back then. Uh, and as Stephen Carter's wife said, who made a way out of no way, which I think is a great way to put it. Um, and how then, as now, they are fighting to be heard. So again, that is Invisible, the forgotten story of the black woman lawyer who took down America's most powerful mobster, whose name I cannot pronounce, by Stephen L. Carter. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. It's so good. All right. Would you like to hear about our next sponsor? Yes, please. Wonderful. Our next sponsor this week is Good Me, Bad Me. It's now out in paperback. It's by Ali Land. So here's what it's about. When your mother is a serial killer, how far does the apple really fall from the tree? This is right on theme for today's show. <laughs> it certainly is. Good Me, Bad Me is a dark and compelling psychological thriller. The daughter of a serial killer turns her mother into the police, but she has secrets of her own. Will she be good or bad? bad. It's a character-driven, compelling, dark, I said psychological thriller. It's been called Powerful by the New York Times and Unputdownable by BuzzFeed. Good Me, Bad Me by Ali Land is now out in paperback and you can pick it up wherever books are sold. We'll also have a link in the show notes. All right. Well, I'm just sticking with memoirs about people going through their personal stuff. (laughs) Um, My next pick this week is Interior States. It's actually a collection of essays by Megan O'Giblin. This is out today. Uh, I'm like very rarely actually write about release days these days, but here we are. Um, This is a collection of essays largely about what it means to be a Christian and a Midwesterner. Uh, This is the first line of the synopsis that the publisher provides, and I think it's right on. A Christian and a Midwesterner in an increasingly secular America where cultural capital is retreating to both coasts. Megan O'Giblin is a critic. She's a writer. She grew up in an evangelical family. Um, she attended Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, which is one of the sort of like preeminent evangelical conservative Christian uh, higher education institutions in the country. And she still lives in the Midwest, but she no longer identifies as Christian. And she's no longer practicing. Most of the essays in this book wrestle with. Um, where the church is, what the church, the evangelical church in particular, teaches people um, about their lives, especially young women, and how we reconcile those teachings with things that you see out in the world, um, or with experiences that in her case, uh, her experiences did not jive with what her religious upbringing told her would happen to her or told her she would feel about things. Um, This uh, is really wonderful. If you grew up in in or adjacent to the evangelical church, especially in the Midwest in the early 90s, like if at one point you knew the lyrics to a DC talk song, um, there is a lot in here that is going to hit really close to home. Um, I felt very seen by a lot of it. And my 
time in that church uh, and in those traditions was much more limited than hers was. So I imagine, depending on how deeply enmeshed you were in that world, it might be really, really quite something. Uh, she just is unflinching about the... Th- sometimes the good things that the church does in the world about some of the real challenges for the ways that uh, it treats people and the stuff that she just couldn't reconcile herself to. There are other pieces in the collection. Like these are mostly essays that were published elsewhere. Um, for the most part, they're put together in a way that flows to tell her story. There's a little bit of repetition as happens in essay collections. But then there are some pieces that are like a review of this thing or an essay about this one issue that uh, are plopped in and are good writing, but I felt like they broke up the flow a little bit. Um, this could have stood alone as just a collection of essays, like specifically about uh, Christianity and evangelical culture. She brings that lens to the things that she's talking about and reviewing, but it didn't hang together quite as well as I wanted it to, mainly because I just wanted to keep reading about like other people who watched a crazy video called Without Reservations about teenagers who die in a car crash and don't get into heaven. When I was like, I saw that video in high school. Uh, so I thought it was really wonderful. Um, Obviously, some of this comes from my own experiences and being able to relate to what she's writing about. But I think that she tells her story in a way that anyone could find interesting. And certainly understanding what's going on in evangelical culture continues to be important for understanding what's going on in our culture at large and politics today. So that is Interior States, Essays by Megan O'Giblin. My next book is about a very evil, evil person, which obviously comes from my own experiences. Um, Mm. Just kidding. Uh, It's (laughs) The Lies We Told by Camilla Way, which is a super page-turnery thriller. It takes place as two timelines. It's about a woman named Beth. It's set in the past with Beth. She has a daughter named Hannah, who is really evil, just evil, 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 just does terrible things, you know, and it's sort of like a, we need to talk about Kevin's situation in which, you know, she's just so awful to her mother all the time, and then when her father's around, she's like, oh, daddy, you know, and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, she's so sweet, all the stuff, and, you know, behind his back, she's just awful to Beth. And then the other timeline takes place in the present day, it's about a woman named Clara, and basically, like, right off the bat, she wakes up, she realizes her boyfriend Luke did not come home, and... She doesn't know where he is. No one knows where he is. And she's trying to figure out what could have happened to him. They have this seemingly perfect relationship. That's always a problem right there. Uh, You know, no one has any idea where he is. She starts going through his stuff when he doesn't come home. And she finds these disturbing emails from a woman being like, you're going to get yours. And so she goes to the cops and they're trying to figure it out. You know, meanwhile, we're going back and forth between them and with Hannah, who's getting older. You know, she's going from tiny tyrant to a full-blown monster. Um, And Clara continues to search... You know, for her boyfriend, Luke, uh, there's something sort of weird about their upstairs neighbor, maybe, she thinks. Uh, and she goes mm-hmm. to learn about as much as she can about his life and his parents. Because it turns out that Luke actually had a sister who went missing many years before. And is it possible that these two are connected? Uh, I'm not going to say much more about that. The, the only way the book faltered a little for me, and it might just be my own personal opinion, is that... They try to explain, or they way tries to explain um, why Hannah is the way she is. I kind of just like going with the she's just evil because that just happens. Um, you know, like did you ever read Sounds of the Lambs or anything? Mm-hmm. Like a couple books into it, you know, Thomas Harris is like, "This is why he is the way he is," and I was like, mm, "I 
I just thought he liked to eat people. You know, like, <laughs> I just liked thinking, like, he, you know, eating people was his jam. So, or was with his jam. Um, so, oh, also, and Thomas Harris has a new book coming out next year. That is so exciting. But anyway, back to the horrible young woman. Um, you know, it's trigger warnings, you know, for violence. Uh, just a, There's a horrible animal death. I'm really just hitting them all this week. Um, but it's if you want, like, a, a good thriller to just sit down and read in one sitting, this is it. It's The Lies We Told, and it's by Camilla Way. All right. You really did ring, like, all the trigger bells oh, yeah. this week. It's the fall. It's time for these books. Yep, that's true. Uh, well, fall to me is all about cooking. So this next one is perfectly timed. It came out last week. It's the best American food writing of 2018. This is the very first time ever that the best American series has included a food writing anthology. Ruth Reichel edits it. And at the beginning in the introduction, she says something like it's about time. And I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, There are, I think, close to 30 pieces in this collection. And they're wonderful and far-ranging. There's a piece about Mario Batali and the Me Too movement. There's a piece about how NBA players are obsessed with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, like it's this huge superstition thing, but maybe there's also some dietary science behind it. It was totally fascinating. You learn about how the Driscoll family took over or like rose to strawberry domination. Uh, There's always, uh, well, I mean, usually these Best American series have just a great breadth of voices. And in the food writing one, there's a lot of interesting looks at um, food culture culture at what's going like the mixing pot nature of American food culture and what's going on with international cuisines that make our their way uh, into U.S. cooking and what uh, different chefs are doing there. There are you know restaurant reviews. There are deeply researched pieces about various things. Uh, It's super. Just if you like food, you care about food and cooking and food culture in the U.S. You're going to find a ton of stuff to think about here Um, and like lots of really great hey did you know kinds of tidbits i definitely texted bob like the whole story of nba players getting into peanut butter and jelly sandwiches uh, just lots of great pieces from some familiar voices uh, like helen rosner from the new yorker writes the piece about mario batali but also some food writers that were new to me and that i'll be looking up uh, for finding more of their work online So again, you know, there's food, there's restaurant reviews, uh, there's a lot of stuff that brings in the current cultural moment and the political moment. And of course, those things are connected to the food we eat and to how we think about food and cooking. So it's really wonderful. It's the best American food writing 2018, the first one. Everyone should buy it so that they know we want to continue getting these every year. I loved it. Look at how we balance each other out. It's like you haven't been around for three weeks and I've almost chewed through my restraints and you're like, you're like murder, 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 murder. And I was like, earnestness, vulnerability, food. We're very uh, on brand for ourselves today. (laughs) Oh, Lib. Well, those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I am reading... Main Roads to Gettysburg, How Joshua Chamberlain, Oliver Howard, and 4,000 men from the Pine Tree State helped win the Civil War's bloodiest battle. And that's Main Roads as in Maine, the state I am in, which has still unsuccessfully been able to get rid of me. Um, And, yeah, because the Civil War is my favorite subject to read about. 
Um, and I found this. And Joshua Chamberlain is from Maine. And he, if you don't know who he was, he was uh, part of the 20th Maine Regiment and helped turn the tide at Gettysburg and you know win that war. And uh, so for my birthday a couple years ago, they were doing a Joshua Chamberlain exhibit at the History Museum, and that's where I <laughs> wanted to go. And so, like, his famous battle cry from Gettysburg is, Stand firm, ye boys of Maine! And so I bought a t-shirt that said, you know, Stand firm, ye boys of Maine. But then I came home, and I wore it out once, and people were looking at me like, Look at that thirsty girl. And so I have not worn it since then. Maybe if I was, like, in a different state, but in Maine, doesn't fly. <laughs> That whole story, it, that's your wheelhouse. This book is your wheelhouse. It's true. What are you going to read? Uh, you know, Brene Brown, my homegirl, has a new book out. Well, it'll be today by the time the show is out called Dare to Lead uh, that I did not get an early copy of. So I will be reading it with the rest of the world. It's about brave work, tough conversations, and whole hearts. She's a sociologist who researches vulnerability and uh, sort of started out looking at vulnerability and imperfection and the ways that being vulnerable in our personal lives and our professional lives allow us um, to you know, form deeper, more meaningful relationships and have more meaningful lives and uh, now she is moving out into sort of broader looks at like st still those individual things we need to work on in ourselves and practices we can develop, but how that ties into um, the political landscape and the culture at large. So um, I'm really looking forward to this one. I'm always looking forward to her. Um, so Dare to Lead, that's what I'm going to be reading. Awesome. Yes. You know, before we wrap up, it occurs to me that we need to remind people that if they want to get custom book recommendations from the Book Riot team, they can do that now. Yes. With our new service, TBR, Tailored Book Recommendations. Uh, it's like Stitch Fix for books. You can sign up to get recommendations by email. That's $15 a quarter. Or hardcover books in the mail for $75 a quarter. Delivered in partnership with our good friends at Print Bookstore in Portland, Maine. And you can find out all about that at mytbr.co. So check that out. It gets mytbr.co. You said Stitch Fix for books so easily. I last week I wanted to say it and I was like, Gosh, blah, blah, blah. like I just I can't <laughs> you know, say it. <laughs> it's because I Jeff and I have been talking about making something like this for like five years, and I originally conceived of it as Stitch Fix for books. So I've had five years of practice. Okay. With that phrase. All right. I won't beat myself <laughs> okay. up over it then. <laughs> MyTBR.co. So that wraps it up for us. If you have anything to <laughs> say does. to... If you have anything to say to us, you can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. Hit us up on Twitter. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, S C H I N S K Y. Liberty is Miss Liberty. I'll say I'm on Instagram, um, but sending, if we're not like already friends, I don't check my Instagram messages very often. So if you need to get to us, email us at all the books at bookriot.com because I have been getting some Instagram DMs that I find like weeks yeah. later. That's just not the best way to get to either. Of us. So that email address is all the books at bookriot.com. I try not to look uh, at those because it's like there be dragons. Right. It'll be like two nice book people and 15 dudes <laughs> saying variations of hey, pretty lady. Yep. And it's like, no, just no. I don't I try not to go in there too. Yeah. There are skulls in that tree. <laughs> oh, good job. Bring it back around. 
Thank you. Uh, if you like the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend. You know the deal. And yeah, it helps us out. And as much as we would love to tell you about more about today, I had to finish swallowing my juice, but we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter in which I talk about more yeah. fabulous books. And in the meantime. And in the meantime. <laughs> what? We're out of practice, Liberty. <laughs> all right. Happy reading. Happy reading.